Early Christians faced many trials, threatened with suffering, loss, hardship, even death. Somehow, they thrived. Today, as we face our own trials, can we somehow thrive? Hey folks, welcome to the Compass Church. I, I know we always have visitors that are here, and I don't know how you feel sometimes when you're a visitor, you're a little freaked out, like, this church is weird. Yes, we are weird, but we are glad you're here, and we're praying that you feel greatly blessed, that you would sense the presence of God, maybe a bit of his love for you, and that you'd walk away feeling that your life has been marked in a beautiful way. Hey, uh, I have an announcement to make that's just a, of great joy for our whole church. You know, when, when God blesses one family in our church, he blesses all of us, and we have been blessed. Yesterday, our church grew by one. Uh, as you know, our campus pastor, Daryl Cloud, and his wife, Laura, uh, have a child. Well, he came into the world yesterday, and little boy was born. Well, praise God for that, huh? Uh, his name is Jet. Jet with two T's. I like that. Huh? That's cool. Jet Cloud. Uh, we went, my wife and I, <laughs> they match, you know, that's where jets go, up in the clouds. We, uh, we went to the hospital, Jen and I, last night and visited, and he, you know, those clouds make cute kids, and you will... You will fall in love with little Jet when you have a chance to see him. So we praise God for his many graces in our lives. I wanted to do a little review. This is uh, the last of the five-week series on trials. Remember, this is all about the five biblical trials before that Supreme Court back in Israel in those days called the, the Sanhedrin. Those members of the Sanhedrin had the opportunity to watch Christians endure great pressure and hardship. And they also got to see how God shows up for his own. They saw the graces God gives those who are under trial. The same graces he'll give us today when we have hardship of our own. And so let's do a little review, shall we? Uh, Here was the five weeks of this series. The first week was the trial of Jesus Christ where we saw God gives the grace of dignity. Our, 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 our identity is firmly based in who God says we are, and no hardship can take that away. Jesus was insulted and told that he was nothing, but he stood firm in who he knew he was. We can do the same. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God. You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, and nothing can take away your royal, precious status. Week two, we looked at courage. This was the trial of Peter. And God can grant us courage as well. You know, Peter was previously had failed. He was a coward, and God made him brave. 
And by his grace, through his spirit, can do the same for us. Week three was the trial of the apostles. All 12 were dragged in together. And here we see that God fights for us. When we go through hardship, God goes through that hardship with us. He gets in the fight. And he becomes part of uh, the, the, the mess. And you say, how does God get involved? Well, we saw that God can sometimes miraculously remove the problem. Sometimes it's not miraculous. It's behind the scenes, working in the circumstances called providence. God works providentially in our lives. And then we saw God can work not in our circumstances, but in us to empower us and enable us to endure what we face. Last week, the fourth trial was the trial of Stephen tough one. Stephen was killed by the Sanhedrin, executed for his faith. And we saw how when we face death, as Stephen did, we can do so with spirit-given peace and die well. And that brings us to the last, the trial of the apostle Paul and the grace of forgiveness in the midst of our failure. Speaking of failure, I wanted to share one of my own. Uh, I, I was late, my wife and I, in fact, it was her fault. We were late to a funeral. Her Aunt Mary died a few years back. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been late to a funeral. Not a good idea. You should be on time to funerals. And I felt awful. We had not managed our time well. And we were 10 minutes late. And I, I slipped into the back hoping that we could just kind of join without any attention being brought to ourselves. But as I sat down, it felt like every eye in the house was on me. And they were not loving eyes either. I felt like people were glaring at me like, you bum, you bum. And I'm like, man, And at that moment, I took the program of the funeral and started trying to see what we had missed. The first element said, welcome by Pastor Jeff Griffin. (laughs) Uncle John, the widower, had sent me an email requesting me to co-officiate this funeral, and I had not gotten the email. And so I showed up late To a funeral, I was co-officiating. I guess I was later described to me. Packed. I mean, there were like 300 people at this funeral. And there was this grand musical prelude. And as it ended, there was crickets. This awkward moment when I was supposed to open the official service. And it seemed like an eternity, I guess, as everyone sat and looked at each other awkwardly. And finally, some guy mercifully broke the awkwardness by bounding up on stage and doing my part. Can you believe that? I was just humiliated. And then I look further down and I see, oh, I'm supposed to close the service as well. And so I frantically started trying to think of a few things to say. And when my time came, I got up, which was so humiliating because everybody's like, ah, here's the bum who was supposed to be here at the beginning, you know. And I fumbled around trying to provide some words of comfort. And then it was over and I just wanted to get out of there. And my wife said, we have to go greet Uncle John. And I'm like, uh-uh, I don't want to greet Uncle I love Uncle John. And 
He loved his wife, whom he'd been married to for over 50 years, and he wanted nothing more than to have a funeral that honored her with the perfection of its planning and execution. And I'm the guy who blew it. Do I want to look in his eyes? No. And Jen said, there's a line of people going to greet Uncle John. We need to stand in it. And I knew she was right. So I went over in this line, and I mean, dread and fear. I am getting closer to Uncle John, just going, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And we finally got there, and I said, Uncle John, I am so sorry. And he reached for me. At first, I flinched, you know, and he (laughs) grabbed me, and he hugged me tight. And he said, Jeff Griffin, your words were from God. And they ministered to my heart more than you'll ever know. And you honored Mary. How can I thank you? (laughs) Ever wonder what grace looks like? (laughs) That's grace. And I would argue that's the heart of God on display. And as we move into our passage, you're going to see God's heart reflected in that drama. And I'm going to turn back to this moment with Uncle John again in this message as a reminder of how God responds to us in our failure. You say, why are we talking about our failure? I thought we were talking about our trials. Here's why. Sometimes, often, our trials are also our moment of our greatest failure. Sometimes when we go through hardship, we blow it. There's a lot of reasons, you know, as you think through it, when you're going through a hard time, you're stressed out, you're, you're under pressure, your patience is thin, and sometimes you're just not at your best, and you say things and do things that in retrospect you regret. Sometimes when you're going through hardship, you're hurting so deeply. People turn to alcohol to numb the pain and make bad choices in that regard. Other times people just want to escape and they, they're so sick of their life and the pain in their life that any means of escape, a lot of times pornography becomes an alternate reality that they can escape into. They make bad choices. Others in their pain, they're aching with loneliness and they turn to an inappropriate relationship to try to provide some comfort in their moment of need. But so often, I think you would agree with me, our moment of greatest hardship is also a moment of great failure. And that's what happened with the Apostle Paul when he appeared before the Sanhedrin. Think with me. The expectation for how Paul will do before the Sanhedrin was probably sky high because he's the one who's been trained all his life for moments such as these. He was an intellect with a high degree of education, a Pharisee who had been trained under Gamaliel, the most widely respected and popular member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, Paul grew up around the people of the Sanhedrin. Paul was one of them. You know, he, I don't know if he thought this way, but I think he probably did. In Paul's mind, he probably said, you know, so far, that Sanhedrin has only met Christians. I mean, he looked at Peter and the apostles. He goes, they were ignorant peasants. Now, Paul would say, they did a surprisingly good job. Considering their lack of formal education, I was shocked, Paul may say. He wouldn't have said this to anybody, but inside. I was shocked at how well they did. 
But the poor members of the Sanhedrin understand Christianity solely based on the testimony of these peasants who are ignorant. Finally, they will hear the faith articulated from a man of eloquence and intellectual uh, education. And, And Paul probably said to himself, this is my home court. I'm going to light it up. I'm about to hit a grand slam. And in his mind, he knew this was to be his finest hour as he's brought before the highest court in Israel. Well, let's see how it went, shall we? So turning in the book of Acts to chapter 23. This is at the end. So far in our study of the book of Acts, we had been towards the beginning of the book Now we're towards the end. Chapter 23 is 20 years later. Paul's before trial. Uh, The page in your book, your Bible in front of you in the chair back is page 1,118. 1118. Acts 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. Can you see the confidence? He's not looking at the ground or, you know, he's staring them down. He's a man who's about to deliver the greatest speech ever heard, you know. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in, the, in all good conscience to this very day. Interesting beginning. What he's getting at is how righteous he is according to the legalistic observance of the law. Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were known for making sure they obeyed every law. And now Paul knew that his heart was sinful and that he needed the grace of Jesus more than anybody. But he wanted these guys who were so into keeping the law to know that he was one of them, that his whole life had been devoted to keeping the law. That sounds a little arrogant to you. You should know it sounded a little arrogant to them, to the high priest. Look at what the high priest does. It says, at this, the high priest Ananias, let me tell you real quick, Ananias is not the high priest that we started with. That was Caiaphas, do you remember? 20 years have passed. The new Herod has brought in a new high priest, and Ananias was a bum. He was known through extra-biblical literature as being one who was corrupt, immoral, a jerk. And look at that, you can see that. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Somebody slap that guy. Can you imagine? Someone came up to the Apostle Paul and whack across the face. How would you do if you were slapped across the face? There's a number of us in the room that would not handle that moment well, and neither did Paul. Uh, Look what happened. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul blurts out in a moment where he's lost his temper. You know, whitewashed wall, that's a name calling. That's an insult. Uh, It's essentially calling him a hypocrite, you hypocrite. 
when an ancient wall was broken and rickety and a mess, they wouldn't address the substance sometimes. They'd just give it a facelift. They'd paint it with white paint to make it look nice, even though it was a mess beneath the surface. And essentially, that's what Paul's saying of this guy. You're a mess. You may sit on your high seat. You're a hypocrite. Paul's throwing out insults at the high priest. Look at the next phrase. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, "Uh, He's backpedaling here. Uh, Brothers, I, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For clearly it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul, all of a sudden, why he didn't realize it was a high priest, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't looking that way and he just heard somebody that direction blurt out, slap him. And he just turned in that direction and said, how dare you. Uh, but he didn't realize it. And now he realizes, ay, 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 I insulted the high priest. God's law makes it clear where to show respect. And Paul is repentant. He's admitting, I was wrong. Clearly, that was a bad choice. Can you relate to Paul? Do you lose your temper when you're going through a hard time, when you're really stressed out, when you're frustrated? Do you find yourself irritable? Oh, come on. You're all looking at me like I don't, I'm the only one. Uh, come on. We, we know that this is one of the great. We can relate to Paul in this moment. Well, how about there? Does His speech is not going well so far. Does it get better? Uh, Not much. Uh, Verse 6, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, those are two parties that differed on theological matters, both represented in the Sanhedrin. Paul called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee. I'm descended from Pharisees. And I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul is taking an unusual approach. He's, he's intentionally deflecting the attention off of himself and trying to get these two parties to war against each other. He's, he's flustered. He's, he's not going well. And he, he takes a tactic he will later regret. It's interesting. In the next chapter, Acts 24, when he's recalling what he said, he's telling a guy named Felix what he said in the Sanhedrin. You can tell his regret. But he, he, he takes a cowardly route, I would call it that. And he's, rather than boldly proclaiming the gospel, he turns to a theological matter that these two parties disagree on. The, 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 the essence of resurrection. See, the Pharisees believed there is life after death. The Sadducees believed there was no life after death. Paul says, you know what's really on trial, and that is what's really on trial. It's not me so much as the concept of resurrection of the dead. Is it true or is it not? And these parties start going at it, and Paul realizes he's not on me anymore. Really, Paul? Is that how you... Remember Stephen preached this 52-verse sermon that's so beautiful, that proclaims God's faithfulness and that? Well, look at how it went. Uh, Check this out, verse 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, just as he had planned. 
Jumping to verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring him into the barracks, throw him in the prison, get him to his jail cell, trial over. It was ended prematurely, and Paul found himself in jail going, wow, that didn't go like I had expected. I lost my temper, and I chickened out. And now I, just imagine, join Paul for a moment through your imagination, sitting in that prison, reflecting on how that went. He's like, oh boy, that was embarrassing. He's like, all these peasant Christians waxed eloquent and represented Jesus with clarity and courage. And look at me. Paul's like, I hope that they don't record that in the Bible someday. You know, if, if I got to deal with thousands of years of people realizing how I handled my moment of glory before the Sanhedrin, oh, the shame of that, you know. And God said, oh, I'm putting it in the book. In this very moment where Paul realizes that he blew it, here he had his opportunity before the greatest court in the land, and he blew it. In multiple ways, he blew it. In this moment when his failure was so evident, the grace of God came upon him. And here's where we're going to learn about how beautiful God's forgiveness is. When we say that God forgives us in our failure, you may say, yes, I know that to be true. But deep down you may ask, but what does that mean? What does it look like? What is the forgiveness of God in my moment of failure tangibly feel like? And what's great is as we look at God's forgiveness displayed to Paul, we're going to see that it's beautiful. Shall we? Verse 11, next verse. The following night... The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Folks, that little verse is going to show us three ways God's grace was on display with Paul and shall be in us as well. And the first comes from this phrase, The Lord stood near Paul. In the moment of God's, I'm sorry, in the moment of Paul's great failure, God chose to draw near. Paul said, of all the times I've experienced God, on this night, God stood right by my side. I felt his presence. I enjoyed his voice speaking to my heart. I basked in his tender love. In fact, when God says, take courage, The old King James uh, translates this as, be of good cheer or cheer up, my child. You know, when we talk about be encouraged, that's a cheer up. That's the essence of what's being said here. I know you're so down, God says, I have come to cheer you up, to wrap my arms around you. That's just like what I experienced with Uncle John. You know, when I stood by him in the line and I looked at him and I said, John, I'm so sorry. I half expected him to just kind of next and skip right over me, you know, and I would have not blamed him. I deserved that. But when he put me in that bear hug and held me tight, 
That's grace. And that's what God does. I can imagine Paul's like, Lord, what, what are you doing here? I don't deserve, just look the other way. I let you down. When we blow it, a lot of times we feel like we shouldn't enjoy the loving presence of God. Don't we? Come on. I know I'm not alone in this. I'll, I'll go through this crazy ritual. If I turn to a quiet time right after I've blown it in some way, I'll be like, you know, I don't deserve a great quiet time right now. Maybe if I live godly-like for a couple weeks then, but not now. And yet the moment of our greatest failure is the moment we need the loving presence of the Lord the most. And so don't hold him at a distance saying, Lord, I, I shouldn't. At that very moment, remember that your enjoyment of God's loving presence has never been based on your worthiness. We've all messed up, and we enjoy God because of the way that the cross of Christ has paved into the presence of God. It's the grace of God is why we enjoy. So yes, even in your worst moment when you blew it so bad, as you repent, he will draw near, and he will embrace you. And he will whisper into your heart of his undying love. And you'll squirm and say, oh, I don't deserve this. Give in to the relentless affection of God. Because you need it in that moment. So there's one way that God shows his forgiveness. By lovingly drawing near, right? When we fail. Let's move on. How about this? God speaking to Paul says, As you have testified about me in Jerusalem. Paul's like, okay, so I was called before the court to testify. And you're going to say, I testified about you? Paul says, as I see it, I royally blew it. And yet God's describing it as if it were some glorious moment. God's saying, Paul, were you not on trial because of your allegiance to me, Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, I was on trial, God, but I blew it. God says, Paul, you did it for me. Yeah, but it was awful, but it was for me. It was disgusting. It was for me. It's like when your kid brings you that uh, project they've made in kindergarten, and it is so ugly, you know, and, and I would say, throw it away, your kid. But you would not. You would say, I love it. It's precious. That's our fumbled attempts to honor God. The Lord uh, receives what Paul has done as a glorious testimony. I call this selective amnesia. <laughs> it's God's propensity to forget the bad and remember the good. You testified for me in the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. I blew it. You testified. You know what the Bible says? God forgives us so thoroughly that amnesia, he forgets. The Lord says, I will remember your sin no more. I will blot it out. Other verses say, God says, I will cast it so far away from me that as far as the east is from the west, so far will your sin be removed. I will bury your, the Bible says, God says, I will bury your sin in the deepest ocean. The forgiveness of God is seen in his decision to remember no more 
our failure and to remember our fumbled attempts. When I hugged Uncle John and I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, Jeff, your words ministered to my soul and honored your aunt. Yeah, I also forgot a big part of being there, you know. It's like he forgot it. He didn't even bring it up. He just wanted to celebrate what I had done well. That's the heart of God. Our lives are not impressive. You know, let's just say we we live them for the Lord and we say, here, and uh, we know we're embarrassed. And God erases, blots out, and forgets all that is failure and celebrates all of our fumbled attempts to honor him. That's grace. It's like God's bragging on him. This is Paul who testified me before, about me in Jerusalem. And he's like, you should have seen it. It was ugly. And God says, I love you and I'm proud of you. Folks, that's forgiveness. God forgets your failure, celebrates the good. Let's move on. How about this? God says, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, God says, so also must you testify in Rome. God said, that's nothing yet, Paul. Now you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to Rome, the capital of the empire, the greatest court in the world, and there you will stand before and give testimony again. And I can imagine Paul going, Don't you think you want somebody else? You know, I kind of showed how I performed before a court, and it was ugly. And Paul would have assumed he had been disqualified for great opportunities to represent the Lord in the future. Not so. God's grace is seen in his wonderful plans for us. We say, not me, Lord. You, You can use in great ways others, but you see how bad I blew it. I'm not. God says, hey, listen, if blowing it disqualified you from being a servant of mine, I wouldn't have any servants because they've all blown it. And God says, I forgive. And my forgiveness is seen in my plans, the great plans I have for you, to use you in ways to change the world for Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And you say, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. That's true. But grace says, doesn't change the fact that he's got incredible plans. You know what Uncle John did when I hugged him? He looked at me in the eyes and he said, Jeff, he says, we're, we're all, uh, not all, only actually a few are going to the graveside. He said, would you be willing to share a few words about Mary and the hope of Christ at the graveside as well? And I'm like, are you sure you want to ask me, the guy who didn't show up? You don't know if I'll actually be there, you know? And, and I said, sure. And his desire to continue to call upon me for important responsibility reflects the heart of God. God says, oh, Paul, I am the God of second chances. I am the God of do-overs. And now we're going to Rome, and you're going to do even better. And Paul's like, I can't do worse. <laughs> the grace of God. You know, I thought I would end by just showing how I have recently tried to apply this in my own life. Uh, a few weeks back, it was actually the week after Christmas, I think I mentioned that I got to go to Colorado to go skiing with my parents. My brother from California was out there too. As we were getting ready to go to O'Hare, my, my wife 
challenged me, as she always does. She says, Jeff, remember to be fun. Fun dad. And she knows that airport Jeff is not a good Jeff. I don't know fully what it is about the airport, but, you know, it's so stressful. You, if you're, you know, you can be late to a funeral, but if you're late to a plane, it's gone, you know, and so you got to get there on time, and there's security and tickets and baggage and all this stuff, and I get really focused. I get task-oriented, intense, maybe even irritable, all right? And so uh, my wife had challenged me, and her challenge was insufficient to bring victory to my life because I blew it. It happened in the uh, security line when they were x-raying my carry-on. Uh, my carry-on went through, and the lady, the TSA agent said, is this yours? And I guess she goes, I need to look inside. I'm like, all right. So she unzips it, and inside there were five little wrapped Christmas presents. You see it coming, don't you? So uh, we were going, again, to be with my brother from California and his family, and I had, I had wrapped them. My wife had called it about... I actually, I'm one of the weird guys who likes wrapping presents. I get all anal about it, and I do it just right, and I, I put ribbons and bows. I know, I do. And I, I was really proud of how good they looked. In fact, I was so proud that I decided not to put them in the suitcase that went under the plane because those... Ruthless guys just throw those anywhere. I wanted to protect my masterpieces. And so I put them in my carry-on. And the lady says to me, I need to unwrap these packages and look inside. I'm like, no, you don't. I said, ma'am, you've got an x-ray machine. Put them all, right, individually through the x-ray machine. You can look right in. They're just Christmas presents. You'll see. And she's like, I need to look inside of them. And I said, I, I wrapped these, and I really don't want them unwrapped, please. And uh, at that point, she signals <laughs> another guy uh, who came over, and he said, is there a problem? And I said, no, she's saying these need to be unwrapped. And he's like, they do. I'm like, fine, go ahead. Well, she starts doing it real delicate-like, you know, and... Like she's going to save the paper, you know? And I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. I just said, don't worry about the paper, ma'am. And I just started ripping them myself. All of a sudden, the big guy goes, back off. <laughs> and I'm, oh, okay. And uh, <laughs> at that point, I look over at my family. They're like, <gasps> <laughs> And my daughter, my eldest daughter said, dad, you embarrassed us. You had a temper tantrum in the middle of the airport. What if people from church had been there, you know, and you were doing this? I was still so mad, I wasn't ready to repent. You ever, you know, when you're really in the funk, uh, and I was like, whatever. They, it was ridiculous. They should not have unwrapped those presents. There was no need. This policy got amok. You know, I'm, I didn't talk to my family as we walked to the gate. And I had gotten four seats together, predetermined that the four of them would sit together and I'd take the seat that was alone. And I had planned that I'm going to use it for a two hour quiet time. Suddenly, I wasn't in the mood to have a quiet time. I'm looking at my prayer journal and my Bible there on the plane, and I'm thinking, Lord, you don't want to talk to me. 
And then I remembered the grace of God. And that this is exactly the moment when I must embrace his nearness. So I took out my prayer journal and I just said, oh, Lord, I blew it. Wow, wow. Lost my temper in the middle of the airport. You know, almost ended up in handcuffs. Not good. (laughs) I repented to God about my failure. And I felt the forgiveness of God wash over me like a cool breeze. I felt the nearness of God flood my heart. I heard his spirit speaking to my soul. I felt the warmth of his embrace. I had two glorious hours on that plane basking in the love of God. Right after your failure? Right after my failure. God's grace is shocking. His forgiveness is beautiful. And when you and I fail, and we will again, we need to remember who he is and lean in to that forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Lord, Paul's probably not pleased that this record is in the book. We are glad it is. God, we needed to be reminded that even guys as great as Paul blow it. God, would you help us know your heart, that you're not like our earthly fathers. You're not like what we anticipate you'd be like. God, when we blow it, even today, help us know your grace, your forgiveness. Help us experience, as Paul did, your grace and your forgiveness, your loving presence. Stand by us, even in the moment of our embarrassment and shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.